0: hello ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience my name is Maurice selby my name is reed and you're listening to the one and only health in harlem on whcr 90.3 fm new york the voice of harlem and the health in harlem podcast and ladies and gentlemen this is going to be the semi-glutide show that's what we're naming it i mean that's what we're going to talk about you probably see it all over social media in the news um, probably friends talking about it. And that's something that we're going to discuss on the show. So that that's the show, right? <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's the semiglutide, semi-glutide show. Um, hopefully that makes some hits. We get some people listening in because we definitely have some, uh, I think, good information out there. I think the biggest thing at the outset of this program, right, the goal of the show, ladies and gentlemen, is to get information out there about this medication. Um, so we're going to try to get through, you know, cut through all of the misinformation that might be out there disinformation i want i'm not even gonna say might be out there these, this information is out there right um there's some good information and there's some information that can be detrimental and we want you to leave this program just being more informed about these medications because they are out there they are popular um, but we definitely need to understand what we're what we're doing right what we're talking about when we talk about these medications
1: and I'd, I'd just like to add this show. Yes, we're we're focusing on semaglutide, but you know it's more an update to the guidelines on obesity and weight loss and that kind of thing. Fact. So it's it's going to be pretty comprehensive about that.
0: That's the plan, ladies and gentlemen. And before we get into this, in order to understand the importance of semaglutide and other weight loss therapies, I think we really need to understand how weight factors into health and health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing, because as much as this has appeared all around us, as we said, in the media, social media, um, just hearing hearsay, right, um, in social circles, everybody talking about this stuff, um, I think we are in in many of those arenas talking about it. I don't want to say at a superficial level, but we're talking about it um, from an aesthetic point of view, you know, people putting up those TikTok photos, um, showing this Dramatic weight loss um, and what does that really mean well from a medicine standpoint and that's what we're gonna really dig into right these medications not as fads not as you know fad diets or um, just another sort of uh, another product on the market when it comes to weight loss but we're talking about addressing real disease ladies and gentlemen so in order to understand the importance of these medications we understand we must understand how, how health is impacted by weight and so when we talk about individuals being overweight and obese, we are specifically defining that as body mass indices, right? In relation to body mass index or BMI. And, and ladies and gentlemen, BMI basically just means body mass index. It is the relationship between your height and weight. Okay. It is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters. Yeah, so we got to use metric system in this. Yeah, let's just get over it. It's <laughs> right, <just> a nice <laughs> little measure. Um, but this is how we define being overweight. Um, between 18, a BMI between 18 and 25 is considered normal weight. 25 um, and over is basically overweight. And once we hit 30, all right, um, once we hit that BMI of 30, that's when we make that sort of diagnosis of um, obesity. Um, and, and there are caveats to all of this, right? It is a, it's a tool in terms of making these diagnosis. It's not perfect. It is an indirect measure of, of this, we can term it as an illness, right? Um, in terms of um, overweight and obesity, um, but it's, it's not perfect. There are other factors that can elevate or even decrease your BMI. Um, individuals with a lot of muscle mass, right, can have falsely elevated body mass index. But mm-hmm. it is a useful marker in that we, we know now that there are, right, with increasing BMI levels, um, we see things like insulin resistance increasing, right? Obesity can lead to insulin resistance, con- which can ultimately lead to the development of diabetes and the complications that come with diabetes, heart disease, stroke, kidney disease, blindness. Um, elevated BMI also correlates with an increase in blood pressure, right? So hypertension, which we also know can result in heart disease, um, leading to heart attacks, heart failure, stroke, kidney disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can ultimately result in cirrhosis and stage liver disease, right? This correlates with an elevated BMI, especially once we get over those, those values of 30 and beyond um, those obesity levels, increased stress on the bones and joints, um, resulting in accelerated development of osteoarthritis, as our cartilage and other connective tissues degrade right under that increased stress. Uh, we see increased morbidity, mortality, right. With COVID we saw at the outset of the pandemic, really, you know, a, a, a population across all races and ethnicities that was significantly was impact significantly impacted were individuals, um, with increased BMI's. Um, and we can go on and on, right. Development of, of um, OSA or obstructive sleep apnea. Um, there is, Uh, Even there are some cancers that have been um, found to be increased in rate um, when we see individuals with increased BMIs. And really, just to put it in further context, we're talking about one of the most prevalent diseases in the world, affecting more than 650 million people. Um, We've seen increases in prevalence here in the United States um, at one point, 41.9 percent here in the country. And that was um, just in 2020. Um, those those rates, I would imagine, have increased, right? Considering um, the challenges with COVID and even just getting out, getting more exercise and stuff. So, in order to understand it, right, we we have to understand this in order to understand these medications, right? Their usefulness, how powerful they are. As one thing, too, right, just as we see this increase in rates of disease with BMI, we also see significant decreases um, when we get our weight under control. Um, And we're talking about as little as a 5% Mm -hmm. decrease in our body weight, leading to nearly a 50% reduction in in the risk of developing type two diabetes. If we increase that weight loss to 10% of the body weight, um, we can see the rate of, or at least the risk of um, type two diabetes um, being diagnosed. We see that risk decrease 80%, right? So we're talking about big, impacts on health when we talk about um weight and related illnesses and that's why this is such a cruise thing it's not about the instagram pics not about the tiktoks yeah um it's about saving lives
1: yeah it's uh it's almost like one of my favorite statistics about smoking cessation is that um within like 24 hours of of quitting smoking if you quit cold turkey If you haven't smoked within 24 hours your risk of a of a cardiovascular event decreases by like over 50 percent or something Mm. like that and this is sort of ringing that same bell with obesity yeah man we're talking Um, about
0: you know these are big 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 impacts in our health ladies and gentlemen
1: like you said a little bit goes a really long way like if you lose five pounds you know think about that you're carrying that around all the time every day that's five pounds less of tissue that. You know, you need to to send blood and oxygen to. It's five pounds less you're carrying around, straining your your bones and your joints. And it really adds up throughout the day.
0: And one thing I want to touch upon, too, is just the stigma of overweight and obesity um, in -hmm. in this country, but really around the world, right? This is something that we we really need to pay attention to as well, because for many decades, um, when we talked about individuals being overweight, or obese, we actually didn't talk about it. Right? We just framed it as, "Hey, this is a this is a problem of the person, right? The person, their values, their lifestyle, um, something that is, in some cases, described as toxic about these individuals, right? They are not doing the right thing. They're not taking care of themselves. They're not eating right. They're not exercising. They're not taking their health seriously. Um, and that's something that I think we've really, uh, at least in the, in the medicine community, we've really had a big shift, big, a a big shift of thought um, in terms of how we look at this as an illness, right? Just as we look at heart disease um, as an illness, we don't talk about individuals, right? We don't blame individuals for eating hamburgers, knocking down a steak, which I did last night. I enjoyed it. And don't feel guilty about that, right? And probably people wouldn't judge me about that. If anything, I would celebrate that. Like, yo, man, I'm glad you, that was good. You ate a steak. Like, good job, you know, (laughs) finding a nice restaurant to eat that steak at um and if i have a heart attack in 15 20 years right nobody will blame me for having eaten that steak whereas whereas with, whereas with mm-hmm. overweight and obesity individuals were blamed for this disease right we don't blame individuals for for developing cancer but individuals were sort of seen as responsible for their illness like solely responsible whereas we now know that there are many factors that play into an individual having challenges with Regulating their weight, a lot of things that are far out of their control, right? And this is why the previous way that we managed, and I would say previous because this is, I think, um, as these medications become more widespread in use, um, which they will, I think that's a fact, you know, we're going to, this is going to be a disease that is managed very differently. But in the very recent past, right, aside from diet and exercise, there really was not much in terms of weight management. Mm-hmm. Um, And that is where I think a lot of the stigma came from is that, "Whoa, you're not exercising enough. You're not eating right. Right. And so this is your fault that you are dealing with these challenges um, in terms of being overweight and obese. And we are now learning that there are many factors that contribute to this, not just environmental. Right. As we definitely talked about those challenges on this program. Right. Food deserts, um, like many places Mm -hmm. in, um, let's say, New York City. For example versus actual genetic factors that factor into this right familial reasons for individuals being challenged when it comes to uh, being overweight and obese factors that are beyond our control right just the way that our body sort of metabolizes food and energy it is very different for everyone and it is easier i mean me and my wife talk about this right <laughs> Um, all the time, right? And and that I think I I would say I'm fortunate to not have the challenges that some individuals have around me when it comes to managing weight, right? And although I exercise and and do um, different things, naturally, I just don't hold a lot of weight uh, when Mm -hmm. it comes to, especially when it comes to uh, just sort of adipose tissue, that fatty tissue that we know, especially in the midsection that can be dangerous and lead to development of illnesses. That is very different from friends of mine, right? Who sometimes we can't enjoy the same things because they're like, nah, man, that's going to hit me very different than than it hits you as far as consuming that burger, right? And so this is not the fault of individuals. And that is something I definitely wanted to highlight um, in this conversation. Even with going back to, yes, we will always promote physical activity, increasing our physical activity on this program. (laughs) um, But we know that there are real challenges in that, right? And that that is not going to lead to the same outcomes in terms of weight reduction um, for everyone across the board. Um, and so, yes, that's that's something that we definitely need to be mindful of, especially when we talk about the use of these medications and who has access to them.
1: Yeah. And I, I just wanted to throw it in there that, you know, there's also the nurture aspect of it too, you know, like who during your most formative years of your life, you're not really responsible for feeding yourself. You know, it's, it's usually a parent or a, a guardian who's you know, providing meals for you and that kind of thing. So based on their lifestyle and what they're choosing, whether they're choosing to, you know, provide their child with fast food or other things, you know, it's it's a lot of pressure, I think, on an adult to, to have to feed a child day in and day out. Um, so I, I get it, you know, resorting to quicker and easier meals that might be less healthy.
0: Yes, and thank you for that, Reid. Um, because this is why we have seen some of the largest public health agencies really take an aim at reducing obesity in this country. And the, and the fact is, they're starting with the most vulnerable and perhaps right, the group in the best position to benefit from these interventions, especially when we talk about it from a, a preventive medicine standpoint. Um, and since 2005, the United States Preventive Services Task Force has recommended that children ages six and older be screened for obesity, And that they be referred for intensive counseling and behavioral interventions to promote um, improvement in weight status. And we've seen the American Academy of Pediatrics, right, releasing new guidelines for evaluation and treatment of children and adolescents with obesity in January uh, of this year, which basically recommend that doctors be more aggressive in treating childhood obesity. And this is a a major shift. Um, We're talking about going from this sort of watchful waiting approach That dominated the last decade and a half um, of treating obesity in children um, to, especially for children ages 12 and older, right, using medications and early surgery in order to reduce um, the weight in these children. And, you know, you talk to different people, there are many um, pediatric practitioners that applauded these new guidelines because over time, the data basically showed, right, that the watch and wait approach just really did not lead to ideal outcomes when it came to weight loss in these children. Um, I mean, as it was really found that a lot of obese children just ended up becoming obese adults. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, really this aggressive approach is really aimed at preventing the downstream effects, right. Being aggressive early, really just treating this as a disease early and diagnosing it, right. And treating it um, as a disease early in order to get these better outcomes in terms of the reduced weight, reduced rates of obesity, and therefore reduced complications resulting from that. Everything that we talked about, the diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease development, all of that stuff. And really, right, this is, um, we've seen other public health agencies um, just sort of aligning um, in this direction in, as we saw in December, 2022, with Govi, aka Semaglutide, right? Being approved by the FDA for use in children ages 12 and older. Um, And so that's how serious the FDA, the AAP, um, all these organizations, that's how serious they are when it comes to to dealing with obesity as a public health problem, right? Um, Serious measures, uh, serious problems call for serious measures, right? Um, And we're talking about serious medications um, that are very effective when it comes to weight loss. Um, This is why it is such a true public health emergency, if you will, and why I think
1: everybody is moving so fast with these interventions. Yeah. And um, like you said, with this sort of new... is I don't know if it's officially classified as a disease, is obesity, uh, um, it, it, but with this new sort of viewpoint of it as a disease.
0: Right, and it's interesting. Yes. It is interesting that you said that, right? Um, because, I mean, essentially, uh, it is a risk factor for the development. Of disease, right? Um, And it it was actually um, a podcast, The Maintenance Phase. You've probably heard of it. Um, They actually had episodes talking about this, right? Especially the stigma um, regarding obesity uh, and being overweight, um, how that has been harmful. They talked about that. Um, But also, a a point that they made in the podcast was really that, you know, this stigma and stuff is unwarranted, which it is. I, I think we've agreed upon that. We've talked about that on on the program, on this show mm-hmm. just now, but they one thing that they said on the program, I'm trying to remember the host name, but basically she said, you know, no one, right? If you look in the medical records, no one says obesity was the cause of a person's death. Um, you know, it basically saying that they, even if you look at ICD-10 codes, ICD-9 codes um, previously, you know, and especially what you put on a death certificate, I can't even recall myself putting that on a patient's death certificate, right? As the mm-hmm. cause of death. And so, yeah, while it it might not be a disease, quote unquote, or we might not sort of diagnose it as as a disease, we know that it is a cause or at least a a major risk factor in the development of diseases. And we're talking about diseases that can cause death. And so in that respect, I do have to challenge the assertions made in that maintenance phase podcast and that, yes, nobody has that on their death certificate. However... Right, there are very real health issues that can arise that can very well lead to a person's demise. Um, Namely, you know, you talk about the number one killer of Americans, right? Heart disease. Mm -hmm. Um, A major risk factor that is obesity. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. More weight you're carrying, you know, you have higher chances. I mean, that's been documented over and over again. You have higher chances of suffering heart attacks. Right. Um, A major killer of Americans. Uh, You have individuals developing heart failure from chronic hypertension, right? And obesity sort of being correlated, right? That increased weight, right? Carrying that increased rate leading to increased blood pressures, which we know fight against the heart pumping blood. Over time, you you develop heart failure. So even if you don't have a heart attack, but hypertension in and of itself being a risk factor for um, the development of heart disease, heart failure, heart attacks, strokes, right, then I think you can make that, draw that conclusion that in many ways, obesity can be a cause of a person's demise, right? Or a major contributor. Um, even if we don't want to say that it was the cause, it, it probably paid, played a factor. Um, and even in terms of treating illnesses, if we go back to talking about the arthritis and stuff, right, it's very difficult to treat arthritis in an individual that has um, increased body weight. Um, because of, again, those mm-hmm. stresses that are put on the body. We talk about getting that physical activity. And we know there are real challenges in that and increased risk of injury. So, you know, yes, we don't want to, we can say a semantics in calling it a disease or not, but it very well is a, a major risk factor for disease. And not only just disease, but diseases that can cause a lot of morbidity and mortality.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's honestly surprising to me that this uh, this view of obesity as a disease is sort of new in the sense that it's almost like uh, medications to treat it came out and then society started viewing it more as a disease versus the other way around versus this is a disease, let's find a treatment for it. Mm. Um, because previous treatments, like you said, that sort of approach of watch and wait and then changing your lifestyle and stuff, previous approaches have gotten us to this point in, in time where we're at. Where obesity is, you know, the worst that it's ever been before. Um, So yeah, I like that this is, you know, this view of 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 obesity is changing a bit more. Um, But it's really been a long time coming. I mean, since Mm -hmm. the the mid 1840s, scientists have been linking various brain tumors to different eating disorders. So they knew at least back in the 1840s that there was some sort of interplay going on here. And that when they saw, you know, this person has compulsive eating and can't stop eating no matter what, and then later on they realized they had a brain tumor, they linked that together. They, they realized, you know, obviously something might be going on here.
0: That is right, ladies and gentlemen. As crazy as it sounds, being overweight or obese can increase the rate of certain tumors developing. This includes brain tumors And in a meta-analysis published in 2015 in the journal Neurology, the medical journal of the American Academy of Neurology, it was found that compared to people with a normal BMI, overweight individuals, meaning a BMI over 25, were 20% more likely to develop meningioma and obese people were 54% more likely to develop one. Thus... When looking at data like this, we can begin to see how being overweight or obese might be tied to this increased risk of developing brain tumors.
1: Since then, science has kind of grown slowly. Um, there's been in the 1990 in 1990 there was a study which sounds you know like common sense these days, but there was a study that looked at. Uh, identical twins who were separated at birth, and it found that the identical twins had more similar BMIs to each other than to their adoptive families. So scientists at this point were realizing, oh, you know, they should have adopted the lifestyle habits of whatever family adopted them. Um, Hmm. But, you know, maybe lifestyle habits aren't as important in obesity as we thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, there's other, there's already other known Um, diseases that cause you know or that that are linked to obesity and and overeating like Prader-Willi syndrome which is Mm -hmm. typically a deletion on chromosome 15 Um, and then children with that disorder tend to develop an insatiable appetite and they really it's it's really difficult raising a child with Prader-Willi people lock up all their cabinets in their fridge because their their appetite just does not shut off, and then there's also been a bunch of studies with with mice where they they looked at they found a, a mutant strain of mice that would overeat, and they when they looked into what caused that they found that it was this uh, this thing called leptin. I don't know Mo if you want to get more into leptin for me. It's
0: definitely gonna factor into what we we talk about as far as um, semaglutide, um and and. You know, really, thank you for that history, Reed, because as we said, right, this is well beyond just environmental and personal factors um, causing this increased weight um, that some of us carry. And especially when we talk about it at the molecular level, what is actually happening, that's what Reed is talking about, right? When we talk about leptin, when we talk about it. Faux, or <laughs> you know, the, the counter hormone ghrelin. Um, we're talking about our appetites, our behaviors, um, really everything, right? Including how much weight we carry, being controlled by our hormone, our body chemistry, right? Our hormones in our body, leptin, being sort of a, an appetite, uh, a, a hormone that is been responsible for appetite suppression. When we talk about ghrelin, I always remember it as being greedy, right? Ghrelin. Um, that can actually stimulate Mm -hmm. our appetite. Um, And then when we talk about things such as semaglutide, right, basically we're talking about it is a glucagon-like peptide 1 analog. Um, And so let's just go back in time to the 1980s, first discovered in the 1980s, glucagon-like peptide 1 um, is an incretin hormone. And basically we have this GLP-1, right, glucagon-like peptide 1, that acts at receptors, GLP1 receptors, and which, like many other hormonal receptors in the bodies, right, it is found in various tissues and organs in our bodies um, the heart, the kidneys, the GI system, our lungs, even the brain. And among other actions, glucagon like peptide 1 stimulates the pancreas to secrete insulin in response to, bl- to blood glucose levels, um, and its action on insulin and in peripheral tissues, right? It, it slows gastric emptying, and also it is a major factor in satiety, right? And so we are talking about things that are very much out of control, right? The release of these hormones, this complex mm-hmm. interplay of these um, chemical messengers in our body, including the brain, right? This is where these medications become very, very crucial um, because just as, right, um, the way that our appetite is stimulated, the way that we metabolize food and energy um, is not under our control. Um, these medications can can be very useful um, in helping us regulate those activities. right? And so yeah. with that said, um, if we look a little bit further into GOP-1, as we said, it's in a number of tissues in the body. We know that in the brain, um, it can increase synaptic transmission, right? Basically imp- increase the way that um, impulses are sent throughout the, the, the brain. We also know that it can increase this satiety signal. So basically the signal that tells your body, hey, you've had enough to eat, right? You are satiated. You are not hungry anymore. Um, it can increase that. There are other effects. Um, we know that it, it affects the way that um, our body produces and metabolizes glucose, which it actually decreases that. And we actually begin to see, right, why it is so useful and why it was first approved to treat diabetes, because it is very, very crucial um, in terms of glucose regulation um, or blood glucose regulation. Um, It does a lot of different things to decrease those glucose levels. And so if we fast forward a little bit, this is something that took eons to understand. And with a lot Mm -hmm. of trial and error, basically... Um, trial and error being a truncated (laughs) and simplified term for research, ladies and gentlemen, Uh, systematic and thorough, good old-fashioned research. Um, And with that said, I just want to give a shout out to all the scientists out there because this is painstaking work uh, to create and develop Mm -hmm. medications like these. Um, But ultimately, researchers were able to synthesize a molecule that acted at the same receptors as glucagon-like peptide one, right? Basically, These GLP1 receptor agonists. And and this molecule, semaglutide, was developed in 2012. And just four years later, clinical trials were initiated for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And a short time later, in 2017, it was ultimately approved by the United States FDA for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And it was approved initially as a weekly injection to treat type 2 diabetes, but also proved to be very useful in reducing the risks of cardiovascular events, especially things like heart attacks in individuals with type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But one thing that was noticed, right, during those trials, researchers and clinicians, basically as with any medication that is under clinical investigation, right, meaning clinical trials, um, they noticed there were effects that were outside of the primary clinical benefits, right? Um, So aside from just seeing those glucose, blood glucose levels falling. Um, they also noticed that individuals taking this medication right, were noted to have significant weight loss. Um, and that led to, in 2018, the inception of the Step One trial, aka the research study investigating how well semaglutide works in people suffering from overweight or obesity. That's when that trial was begun, in 2018. And 1,961 participants later um, and nearly three years later, the study closed and almost immediately we saw, felt the rumblings around the earth, not necessarily hungry stomachs, right? From this uh, appetite suppression, Um, but in March, March 18th, 2021, um, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's where I think this was kind of under the radar, right? Because We were in the middle of the pandemic, basically in the middle of the biggest vaccination campaign the world has ever known, and then sort of just squeaking in there was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine that talked about this, right? This once, it talked about this at one (laughs) trial, this once-weekly semaglutide in adults with overweight and obesity. Published on March 18th, 2021, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the article was titled, once weekly semaglutide in adults with overweight or obesity. This report on a step one trial, a randomized double blind placebo controlled trial, included 1,961 patients with a BMI of 30 or greater who did not have diabetes. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, the study was designed to look exclusively at the effects of this medication on weight loss. Patients were randomly assigned in a two to one ratio to 68 weeks of once weekly subcutaneous injections of 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide or a placebo group. Each group also engaged in lifestyle interventions. Co-primary endpoints included percentage change in body weight and weight reduction of at least 5%. The results were big time revolutionary. From baseline weight at week zero to week 68, the mean change in body weight was minus 14.9% in the semaglutide group versus minus 2.4% in the placebo group for a difference of minus 12.4 percentage points between the two groups. More participants in the semaglutide group achieved a reduction in weight of 5% or more. 1,047 participants in the semaglutide group versus 182 in the placebo group. This pattern carried over a reduction in body weight of 10%, 838 versus 69, and 15%, 612 versus 28. And if you just looked at the change in body weight from baseline to week 68, we're talking approximately 33.6 pounds lost in the semaglutide group versus 5.72 pounds in the placebo group. In addition to that, participants in a semaglutide group experienced improvement in cardiometabolic risk factors, along with an improvement in self-reported physical functioning. The biggest adverse effects reported were nausea and diarrhea in the semaglutide groups, which many participants experienced in mild to moderate severity. Thus, in participants with overweight or obesity, 2.4 mg weekly subcutaneous semaglutide plus lifestyle interventions was associated with sustained clinically significant reduction in body weight with very few major adverse effects to speak of um but yeah all this other all this stuff is happening all around the world <laughs> pandemic everybody's focused on that i mean we were talking about it incessantly on this program and the the vaccines um and then this novel medication comes out to treat this Worldwide problem, right? We said 650 million people dealing with overweight and obesity in the world. And it was just under the radar. But we saw, you know, over time, just sort of um, social media posts beginning. Fortunately, in June 2021, semaglutide under the brand name um, or trade name Wagobi was approved as a 2.4 milligram once weekly injection for the treatment of overweight and obesity. And specifically, the indications are for chronic chronic weight management in individuals with a BMI of twenty-seven or greater um, that have at least one rate related ailment or in people with a BMI of 30 or greater. Um, and so we see this approval from the FDA and then boom, all of a sudden social media posts begin. Um, October 2022, Elon mm-hmm. Musk tweets about it that he's taking Will Govy, right? When people are like talking about how are you so ripped and lean all of a sudden. <laughs> Um, and he kind of throws that out there that that's what he's doing. We see Andy Cohen talking about it um, on TikTok. Um, Ozempic, as of today, has six hundred thirty one point eight million views and counting. The hashtag #ozempic, and then we just see tons of influencers right touting its seeming miraculous weight loss property um, everywhere you look. And so that's it. That's the that's the story, right? Is that um, th- I mean this stuff just burst on the scene under the ra- under the radar. Um, but now it's pretty much everywhere. And I think yeah. the the questions that we have before us, right, is, um, and I think that this has definitely been commented on um, by many individuals, especially when um, we talk about clinicians treating overweight and obesity, how good this is for,
1: for people, right? That's the big question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you for that little bit of a history of the development of this drug, because it does seem like it just, popped up on the market and it blew up, but it really is part of the latest part of a long history of scientists investigating, you know, the the body's internal feedback mechanisms of what is causing hunger? How is the body measuring how much energy reserves it has? Kind of like the gas in a gas tank, you know? How does the body know that the, that you're low on energy and that you should eat? First, they had to discover, you know, that these systems existed. Then they had to discover how they worked and what what uh, things were a part of it. And then they had to discover how to tinker with it without throwing the entire system totally off balance. So, yeah, this is something that's been in the works for a while. Um, for a and, long time. You know, time. it's not exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, man, and,
1: and and that's
0: the thing. It's not happenstance, right? This is not just any product that just appeared overnight. You saw it on infomercial, right? Some some uh, person that in their basement Put together a cocktail and decided to post it on social media this is very very different um and if we you know sort of doing research for this program man looking at the science that went into this that's why i had to give a shout out to all the researchers out there um because we're talking about mm-hmm. glp1 um it is a molecule that is very rapidly metabolized in our body like many hormones right you don't want this stuff just squirting out anytime, it is very highly regulated in our bodies around in very small amounts and it goes away very quickly. Right. And so they had to figure out ways to um, create an analog um, or a molecule that was similar, right. Had similar properties to this GLP one. um, But that lasted longer and they did things playing with, you know, subunits on it and how it binds to albumin, right. How it can basically our bodies can, it can hang around in our bodies for longer times and ultimately Right Through years and years of research, ladies and gentlemen, developed this molecule, semaglutide, and also another molecule, terzepatide, um, which is also out there under um, another manufacturer, another brand name. Um, but basically, this is this is science, ladies and gentlemen, that is out there. So it's very, very different, right than many of the, I would say, all of the products that we, <laughs> we've seen traditionally um, mm-hmm. manufactured and marketed. Um, when it comes to weight loss products. This is something that, as as Reed said, right, to decades of research, and even you could say decades prior to that, right, and just understanding the physiology of our metabolism, our how our bodies become satiated, right, our hunger, all of this stuff, all of this research went into that. Um, and so it is a very different product. And so from that in looking at this, and I'm talking about this purely as a product, a weight loss product, right, or a weight loss class uh, of products is very different than what we've seen on the market traditionally, especially when we talk about the wellness industry and we talk about people and their quack claims, right? This is very, very different um, in that it is something that has been um, not only very carefully researched and developed, um, but also through these clinical trials, very well tested, right? Um, to see that it has these benefits um, in terms of weight loss, um, but also when we talk about um, side effects. And so from right this being very, very different, this is not something that you're going to walk in and get over the counter. Also, what we would discourage on this program is seeking out these medications or obtaining them without being closely supervised by your Mm. medical professional, whether it is your primary care physician, you see a nurse practitioner, um, a a physician assistant, whomever is delivering your primary care, um, if anything, probably the best person to go to being that these medications are very novel. um, It might be wise to seek out an endocrinologist. All right. Somebody that is very well versed in the use of these medications and especially well versed in, Dealing with obesity and overweight, I think it is really, really wise to, to seek out these specialty consultations so that you really get what you're looking for. Right. We talk about weight loss and the, the health outcomes, mm-hmm. the improved health, out, improved health outcomes that come with this weight loss. I would encourage you to really seek out somebody that can help you not only right, prescribe this for you, but manage that weight, because a couple of things, just like any medicine, These medications, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, um, right, come with side effects um, and adverse effects that we need to think about. And there might be long-term things that are not fully elucidated at this point. Although the medications have been deemed to be safe and they are approved by the FDA, um, there might be things that we don't fully understand. As these medications are prescribed to more and more people, more and more people use them, we might learn of other risks associated with them that are not quite clear now. That is something that we must understand, just as right when we talked about COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, and so that's, that's the thing that we, re- I think, really need to understand about these products. They are very well researched, very well produced, and therefore approved by um, the FDA. But you want to use them in close consultation with um, somebody who understands their uses, um, that will prescribe them safely, and be able to monitor you mm-hmm. um, for any adverse effects. And also, before we even jump to medicine, right? Because the what we talked about before, as far as the physical activity, as far as the dietary changes, for some individuals, mm-hmm. those things can work, right? Um, and so for some individuals, those might be the first line things to turn to, right? Or at least give those a shot. And I can't tell you, a reason why I throw that in there, um, Reed, as well, because Reed kind of smirked on that too, in that I know it's easy to take this damn medicine, right? (laughs) For those, maybe for everyone, except for those that are like really scared of needles, because again, it is an injection, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) But um, I I think everybody's been looking for this magic bullet medication. You know, it's not a pill yet. I think in in sometime in the, probably the future, this will be something that could be administered orally. But the thing is, just as I have patients always, you know, when we make a diagnosis of hypertension in the emergency department or high blood pressure, right, one of the first things people is like, man, do I need to take a medicine? I would prefer to do these lifestyle things first, which I think is reasonable to say, hey, we can give these things a shot and see if we can get control of this, right, in three, six months, you know, especially when we're talking about um, in, in primary care medicine. And so I think that approach is reasonable for the management of weight. Once somebody made that diagnosis or you're classified as, hey, you know, know, overweight or we're dealing with obesity um, to try those other interventions first. And then, right, if those are not working or we see, um, and this is why looking at the specific indications of these medicines is is important because it specifically says not only a BMI over 27, right, you're in that overweight range um, before you hit obesity, but it says with a diagnosed ailment, right? An ailment being a complication associated with the increased body weight, whether it's high blood pressure, individuals that um, might have some level of insulin resistance that is that is maybe so like prediabetes or something. um, It says a BMI of twenty-seven and a diagnosed ailment, right? Something that has been diagnosed in association with that overweight status. That is important, I think, really to to understand, right? So individuals that don't have those conditions, you might still be in that window where we can
1: do other interventions before putting you on this medicine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sorry to, to sort of ruin it again, but even if you do get put on these drugs by a doctor, you're still going to have to continue those lifestyle changes. And, you know, like, right. you, like you suggested going to see an endocrinologist or somebody who's, who's well-versed with patients with obesity... They're not just going to put you on this drug. They're going to put you on this drug. They're going to work with you on an exercise plan. They're going to work with you on a diet plan, which is important too, because if you're more satiated and you're eating less, then you're going to need to figure out how to pack all those essential nutrients that you need in a day into less food. So working on a, a diet plan as well in conjunction with an exercise plan and taking this medicine is definitely the way to go and especially because once you stop taking the medicine you want to to keep that weight off so those lifestyle changes are really the only way that you're going to continue on the this is going to set you on the right trajectory but if you really want to continue on that and stay on that trajectory then yeah these lifestyle changes and and that kind of thing are you know what's going to help you keep the weight off long term
0: facts um and it's the same thing thank you for that read um and, and another Example of that is, right, bariatric surgery. Um, Before you can even qualify um, with many surgeons, right, for bariatric surgery, you have to have that game plan in play already, right? What are you doing um, as far as diet and exercise before surgery? I mean, one, to qualify and make sure that it's safer for you to undergo um, the procedure. But then after, right, in terms of you keeping the weight off and not having complications related to the surgery even, Right. Um, if you don't have those other factors in play, then it makes it you're not likely to stand to benefit as, as much. Um, you mm-hmm. will benefit much more with those other approaches in place. And so, yes, I mean, people out there are probably like, yeah, I wanted to hear about this just miracle wonder drug. <laughs> I mean, I think at this point, looking at the data, it is right. Um, That is why it, yeah, has been it definitely is. That's why it's so popular. Um, but without those other things in play, I mean, I think you would really be doing a disservice to yourself by just taking these injections, not really having those other things um, in play. And I guess mm-hmm. we can, that segues, right, read into more of the, I'm not going to say bad yeah. news, but it's real talk, man, as far as side effects. Like, what are the side effects mm-hmm. of this stuff? Everybody asks about that with, uh, with, with the COVID-19 vaccinations. I'm like, well, what are the side effects? True. Yeah. i not putting this in my body. Well, here we are again, ladies and gentlemen. Another thing injection right, that um, we're we're putting into our bodies, and so it is reasonable to ask what what do we
1: expect as side effects? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So mostly the most common side effects tend to be gastrointestinal. Um, so that's you know your nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, potentially constipation as well, um, you know that kind of stuff, burping maybe some heartburn. Um, and those, those are the most common and even those are relatively rare. Um, and so those are you know, typically, the, it's those symptoms that cause people to either stop taking the drug or most commonly cite them as complaints. Um, but you know, there can be more rare and serious side effects um, such as allergic reactions. That's definitely something that's possible. Um, and you know, along the same line, inflammation, burning, discoloration of the skin, infection, ulceration, warmth at injection site, all sort of, Relatively similar to allergic reactions, um, but just, you know, not reacting well with your body. There's also been incidences in changes or loss of taste as well. Also, when it comes to rodents, it's been linked to thyroid cancer in rodents. But scientists have since concluded that the risk for development of thyroid cancer in humans is low. However, it is difficult to quantify, but it's all just based on the the sort of distribution of the GLP-1 receptor systems and the differences in humans and rodents.
0: Yeah. And, and so we're talking about very real adverse effects, right? Um, for the most part, and I think at least in individuals that I know of and, and looking at the literature, they seem to be very well tolerated side effects. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sucks to have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, but when we talk about the, the benefits and the risks of using these medications, which, again, side effects include risks or adverse effects, right? We can classify that as part of the risks. Um, I think for many individuals, the benefit might outweigh the risk. Even we look at those rarer and potentially very harmful side effects, the allergic reactions, anaphylaxis, those things, um, the benefits might still outweigh the risk because those numbers of individuals... Um, have been noted at least up to this point to be small as far as individuals having those more severe um, reactions. But I think it's very early when we talk about um, even these other serious adverse effects, potentially serious adverse effects as far as the thyroid cancer or the theoretical risks, at least from what we know um, Mm -hmm. with some of the animal research uh, with these medications. um, You know, there's also been sort of talk about this leading to the development of pancreatitis and possibly pancreatic cancer all this stuff is unknown i'm not trying to dissuade anyone but these are things that are still being determined with more research as we go forward Um, and i think they will have much more information in years to come about these other uh, possible risks but it is something that we should all understand right um, and that these are novel medications and there might be things that we don't fully understand about them when it comes to risks. And so, yeah, just be on the lookout for that. And I also think it is reasonable, very reasonable. If anything, we highly encourage you to have a conversation with whomever is going to prescribe this for you. Right. To talk about that. Be upfront with those questions. What what am I, what can come of me taking this medication? Right. What are the side effects? What are the risks? Um, and then do you make a more informed decision. That's something we will always advocate on this program. And I do promise that on this program, as we learn more, right, we will share that with you. Um, this will not be the only show. This is the biggest thing, right? <laughs> one of the biggest, you know, revolutions, I think, in terms of, I can say in medicine in general, man, because we've seen the fallout from uh, the increase in obesity um, and, the, and the disease burden that it brings. Um, with these other ailments type 2 diabetes the hypertension even obstructive sleep apnea right and the major um public health concern that that has generated um, in recent decades and, and the setup for that right that in and of itself obstructive sleep apnea being a risk factor for the development of many diseases, lung disease chronic lung disease heart disease hypertension um stroke right so this is something that is, is a major evolution in medicine, um, can lead to significant improved health outcomes. Um, and so it's something that I think is a viable option when we talk about treating overweight and obesity. Um, I mean, I'm excited about it too, as a clinician that treats a lot of the complications of um, obesity right yeah. in the emergency department. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about these medications but I think we really need to be informed in our use of them, and that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, that's the that's the program, you know. I'm not gonna sell this to you. I'm not a Wagovi spokesperson, <laughs> or um, you know, nobody's paying me or us on this program to promote some semaglutide and whatever manufacturer is, is yeah, giving it to you. That, to all that's time. on TikTok. Yeah, you can look at all that stuff. They'll sell it to you, uh, <laughs> or even. But what we do want you to understand is that you you need to be informed in your decision to uh, seek out and use these medications Um, and one thing that we did want to touch upon before closing is just that unfortunately this is not something that is available to everyone right now because many insurance programs do not reimburse for this Um, we know that these injections can be very expensive prohibitively expensive Um, and so what i'm hoping is that we can begin a push right as we learn more about these medicines um, that maybe this is something that, that needs to be expanded to more people, right? There are many more people that can benefit from this. Um, and I mean, that's probably why we just heard it, the rumblings, right, on social media, and in especially the entertainment and business world, people talking about using this stuff because they're the only ones that have access to it, right? Like the regular yeah. person on the street that probably stands to benefit the most, the people living in food deserts, the people that are working seven days a week, and it's very difficult to increase their physical activity or exercise more, right? Those are the people that we demonized in our society saying that they weren't doing enough to deal with their weight. And now we have this miracle medication. I hate using the term miracle. because I'm not a salesman, but I'm just saying, we have this intervention that can help a lot of people and and the people that stand to benefit the most probably won't have access to it for some time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something I'm hoping that we can work toward. Um, maybe we can even advocate i mean i would not i would say that this is not the opinion of health in Harlem or w h c r or whoever whoever is right we are operating the show under, but that is my personal opinion as a physician um you know there are patients that I see in my emergency department that I can't foresee them benefiting in the near term just because of the expense um and it not being yeah reimbursed and if anything we've seen people with diagnosed diabetes right suffering because there's a shortage because so many people are using it um, for its weight loss benefits which is I think for many people probably a good thing but then some people it might be superficial right Um, and -hmm. those people with that BMI of 25 and maybe your doc threw up a couple extra points to get you on a medicine well you're abusing it I would say at that case in that case yeah and so I definitely will not promote just the in order to get a better Instagram photo. That's not what these medications are for. Anyway, let me get off the soapbox. I want to thank you all. First, I want to thank Reed for we woke up very early to get this program done, ladies and gentlemen. Um, get this information out there for you all. And So I thank my man Reed for joining me because nobody wants to listen to a talk in your head, talking about weed <laughs> um, Uh uh-huh, we'll so thanks, to. man. <laughs> no, this is great um also i want to thank you for tuning in and thank you in advance for sharing what you've learned on this program um, and ladies and gentlemen also we want to shout out whcr um, and the awesome management team there um, specifically tina dixon the production manager and angela harden the general manager of the station we could not be on the air giving out wonderful information without their efforts um, day in day out also I want to thank the rest of the health and harlem team shout out to you all you know who you are And ladies and gentlemen, as always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Glory Thomas, Harlem, take care.